This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Brendan Cowell, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you very much. So Brendan is an award-winning writer, director and actor who has worked in film, television and theatre productions, including The Slap and Love My Way. He has won the Patrick White Playwrights Award and the Griffin Award for his work as a playwright. In 2010, he published his best-selling debut novel, How It Feels. Today we're talking about his latest novel, Plum. It's about an ex-football player who goes on a journey of self-discovery after finding out he has a brain disorder. So it seems to me that you um, are a very, very busy guy. I mean, there's a lot going on in your life. You're very um, multitasking or multi-talented. I'm not quite sure which. Oh, either will do. I'll, yeah. I'll take either of the multis. <laughs> will you? Okay. Yeah. Because <laughs> you seem to be very, very busy. Do I? I? I reckon it probably looks like that when you, you know, it's like when you go to a restaurant and they go see crusted brim with twice fried sweet potato with the, and it's like fish and chips. You know, I feel like that's my career. There's a lot of words going on. But, I love you know, that. I, love I tend that. to be, pre- I'm pretty relaxed at the moment, Jane. I mean, I. Uh, Hang on, I'm Cheryl. Jane is. You're the Cheryl. Yeah, uh, Jane is the person that set up the interview. Oh, okay. Do you want to call me something else? Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, no, that's okay. Cheryl. Yeah, I actually am pretty relaxed at the moment, Cheryl, because i I took the uh, I took September off to kind of publicise the book, and I feel like you know after I edited the novel and then did the audio book, um, there's a bit of TV to write, but I just don't want to be one of those writers who kind of goes into disappears into another cave, and y- you need to take a month or two every month or two to kind of fill up and have a look around and watch a few TV shows, read a few books, sit on a few rocks, have a few chats, go on some power walks and confuse yourself and get a bit curious and kind of, you know, fill up fill up the tank again um, so you can go and create something or you just I go feel, into the next yeah. piece writing the same stuff. Yeah, yeah. I think that that's a really good description. I mean, it's not something I ever did consciously, but since COVID, I have been doing that. I've stopped because I had to stop. And that idea that you're talking about where you just have to fill up, it can be quite frightening the first time because you don't know if you're going to come back from it, do you? Well, from the kind of limbo period. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That is the fear. I mean, in my line of work, you don't know if you're going to come back from anything. You know, I mean, I I think that's why we're, you know, we don't need to go bungee jumping as actors and writers because the whole time you feel like there's no net and you're floating through the air. Yeah. You know, and it's like when COVID came around and everyone went, 
I don't feel like I have job security. It's like, welcome aboard. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah, it's exactly COVID's that. like what it's, COVID is right and normal, you yeah, know, yeah. for the rest of the world. Um, you know, I and, you know, as an actor, I, I finished Avatar last December. I haven't worked as an actor since. And I'm so lucky that I'm a writer in its own merit um, so that I can kick on with creativity because I wouldn't know what I'd do if I couldn't be creative. But um, it is hard and and you you got to trust. There's a lot of trust uh, put in place that the idea will come. I feel that often when I interview people like yourself that are so multi-talented creatively, and I often think when I'm thinking about what I'm going to talk to you about, I think that they're storytellers, you know, that you're an actor, that you're a playwright, that you're a natural-born storyteller. But I also think at the same time you're a sucker for punishment because all of those careers are tough. All of them yeah. include criticism. All of them include whether somebody's going to accept it or not. I don't have that in my day-to-day life. And so much rejection. Like I feel as though, you know, people spend five years, ten years, one year, whatever, writing a novel, and then everybody has an opinion about it. And then, you know, you make a film and everybody has an opinion about it. So the resilience has got to be quite deep, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And, I mean, even with this novel Plum, you know, when we sent it out, there was people that just didn't want it. And I wrote this on my own merit. I didn't get a commission from a publisher and I sat in a room. Uh, I did a couple of drafts for a year. And so I didn't earn any money for a year um, on the pure risk that, you know, somebody might grab it. And luckily the great Catherine Milne from HarperCollins connected with it. But if you if you are writing whilst checking your tweets, to see how it's being received, then I don't know if you can call yourself an artist. I think you're a crowd pleaser and I'm not sure if if that's exactly what they are intended writers to be when they, when they kicked the whole thing off with a quill in hand centuries ago, you know. So I don't kind of read reviews. I don't care what they're saying on Twitter. I don't really need luck because I know why I'm writing what I'm writing. I know exactly what I'm doing and I send it out to the world and I'm really proud of it. And then I just want people to connect with it. And these days we live in such a TripAdvisor world where everyone feels like they can give things a thumbs up or a thumbs down. Amazing. You know, I'm not really concerned with that. I'm concerned with the fact that this could help. Um, This could, you know, combine with all the other things in people's lives and somehow sit there and and be a, a welcome addition to someone's existence, and that's that's why I kind of put the story out there, especially with Plum, which is a book about connection. And in this time, there's nothing more beautiful and necessary than connection right now, and trying to change um, and turn out of the darkness into the light. And that's why I wrote the book. I didn't write the book to hunt through and scroll through to see if people validate me. I know I'm a talented writer or I wouldn't still be doing it 20 years later. Mm. You hit the jackpot with Catherine Mill. Yeah, I really did. I'm very grateful. But she also really responded to it. She just got it. And then, you know, it was kind of in between two books and, and together we just grabbed it and she lifted, as I said, you know, on the back page and the thank yous, thank you to Catherine Milne who just grabbed this book and lifted it into the air. And yeah. in TV and film and I'm used to people grabbing what you've got and then picking it apart and telling you why it won't work and coming from a very fear-based 
place of dramaturgy, which is television and film. It's like that audience, maybe not lose that, change that. Whereas Catherine just hit this and went possibilities, you know, and just said, what could this be? Mm. And, you know, there's really, that's what you want as a writer, not somebody to tell you you're amazing because I went and worked really hard on this once Catherine came into the picture, um, the work really began, you know, and she she drives a hard bargain, but it's about its potential and getting the best book out of you that's in you. And that's that's why she's so successful is because she kind of, that's yeah. how she meets a draft. Well, and I think that's why her stories are the way they are because it's a collaboration. It's a, it's a true project, I think, between author and editor. I want to go back, tell me about yourself, where you grew up. How, how is it that you came to be a writer? Take me right back. Did you love writing and reading when you were a young child? Yeah, I did. I, I spent a lot of the time in the back of my mother's car because we were picking up my sisters from dance class. My sister was in, uh, Belinda was a ballerina and Jackie was a singer-dancer who went on to be in a pop group. And so we were driving from the city to San Susie to Brighton to Cronulla to Sylvania after school, you know, till all hours of the night with the girls. And mum and I would spell and read um, and I'd make up stories. And then, you know, with the hit show, Hey, Hey, It's Saturday, they had that great segment, Red Faces, um, with the gong. And I would have a red face. I would demand a red faces on Friday night. And Nan and mum would be in the living room. And um, I would put together kind of a melange, a bit of a kind of a 25-minute variety night, um, which would include impersonations of teachers mixed with Oprah Winfrey interviewing Michael Jackson mixed with a poem about puddles mixed with uh, the song Shut Up Your Face. And I would just perform this thing and mum and nan would just sit there and they said, you know, it was insane. And then all of a sudden when you were 12 or 13, it was really, really good. And we found ourselves quite moved by a lot of your pieces. And so it was just always happening. That's why I've never really aligned what I'm doing with the notion of success or when will I make it? Because it, it was always just happening. It was always just coming out of me. I was telling a story, but I never thought I was intelligent enough to be a writer, I guess, and academic enough. And so I went into acting thinking, you know, that's my true talent. And then after a while, I realized all you needed to be a writer was talent, but a voice. And I definitely felt I had a voice. Um, And so I guess in my early 20s after university, I started writing plays. Tell me, what was your first paid acting gig? My first paid acting gig was when I was sitting in a waiting room at Keen Kids when I was 10, waiting for my sister to come out of dance class. And there was all these boys who looked like me with blonde hair and blue eyes. And they were all going in, I think, for a cornflakes ad. And at the end, the guy said, come on, come in. And I went in, not knowing what was going on. Mum was like, yeah, go on. And I went in and I got the cornflakes ad because I could smile with my eyes whilst I was eating. And then the guy got me a kid's agent and I started doing TV commercials eating because um, I was really good at eating and smiling. Um, and then I started hosting like afternoon shows with Cameron Daddo and stuff as the kid that ate upside down or did all funny little quirky things with jelly. And, you know, it just kind of kicked off from there. But then I had a bit of an accident on a set where I was burnt and I decided acting was not for me. And so I went to university and, you know, thought I'll be a journalist or I'll be a writer. But within about two months, I was the lead in the third year's play 
I got the lead in the third year play in first year, which turned half the university against me. But there was just no stopping me. I was going to act and I was going to write. And, you know, at that time, you know, actors were actors, writers were writers. And when I came out of university, I was like, I'm putting on a play beneath a pub. I'm writing, acting, directing, producing, get written. People are like, you can't do that. And now everybody does it. Every actor's got a screenplay and a production company. But at that time, it was very arrogant to think that you could write and act and put something on, you know. Yeah. And so you really have had a stellar acting career. You're well regarded and you've done, you know, movies and, uh, of course, like we said in the intro, The Slap and Love My Way, but you've also worked on big US films, haven't you? I've just been filming Avatar for the past three years, so, Yeah. yeah. Tell me about the cultural differences between making a movie, an American film, and making an Australian film. The American film that I've filmed, um, we shot in Wellington, you know, so I I went all the way over to London to become a success and I became such a success I ended up in New Zealand, you know. It was (laughs) like, how's this work? I tried to get out of the Southern Hemisphere. It worked and now I'm back in Wellington. But the difference was I was back in Wellington, you know, on a set with Sigourney Weaver and Giovanni Ravisi and Edie Falco being directed by James Cameron in the world's most expensive film. <laughs> so, you know, it's just it's just scale and it's just time uh, that you just don't have. I mean, you know, when we're shooting Love My Way, you're shooting 13 minutes a day and sometimes we'll do like a minute or two for a few weeks in Avatar or a month and then we'll go and shoot it in motion capture in a different way and it's just a very different ball game in terms of scale and, and and facility. But at the same time, you've still got a boom swinger and a makeup artist and catering and the directors trying to get the story to be clear. And and that was the thing about, you know, turning up on Game of Thrones as well. It's just like there's an Irish crew instead of an Australian crew and everyone's trying to do the same thing, which is tell a good story really, really clearly yeah. um, and get an audience. And the actors are all trying to be brilliant and, and we do our best. So... At the end of the day, it's not that different. The only difference is with Avatar, we, you know, we've got a, we've got a month to shoot a, a minute. Selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, thirty six percent better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow grow with Shopify. Get a one dollar per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. You know, I was thinking about this. I was speaking to Damien Cave the other day, who's the um, chief bureau of the New York Times here in Sydney. And I think that was name dropping there. But anyway, it's not really. I just... (laughs) 
he said something because he has this huge crush on Australia. He's living here with his family. And this was last week when I spoke with him and I didn't have a crush on Australia at the time. I, you know, I'm in lockdown. I'm not happy. I'm thinking, you know, is this the right move? Anyway, whatever. But I, we talked about how Australia punches above its weight. And I feel that, you know, Australians are so represented globally, particularly in the arts, particularly in acting, particularly in film. Do you think that's true and why? Yeah, definitely overseas we are. Um, yeah. I mean, I was just watching Underground Railroad, the new Barry Jenkins TV show on Amazon, which is just incredible. and That's a great pops book up. too. Yeah. Yeah, great book. And there pops up one of my good mates, Damon Harriman, and, yeah. um, and a masterful performance from Joel Edgerton, probably the best performance I've ever seen Joel do. And you're like, oh, there they are, yeah. <laughs> 19th century America, and and we're everywhere. I think acting wise, there's a guttural honesty with Australian actors, and I know from James Cameron working with Sam, and then working with me, you know, we don't complain. We get in there, uh, we're nice to the crew, and we give you our our guts, our heart, and our soul, and we don't. Around, you know, and there's a real kind of, there's just a, no avenues or segues between us and the truth. And I think Australian performers just kind of do it, you know, and that's really refreshing. Um, we don't really produce our acting. We, we deliver it. Here it is. Yeah. Here's us. And that's the Australian way. No mess, yeah. no fuss. And I think pe- that people love watching that on screen, but we also have the best cinematographers as well. And and amazing directors. I I just wish we put it together a bit more on home soil um, because we seem to make our best work when we leave here, but it'd be great to see us take those risks and back ourselves creatively in in terms of our ideas here and go for something that pushes the boundaries a bit more and not just in budget. You don't need budget to do that. But I, I, I wish there was more risk taking at home um, mm. in what we do here because we seem to go overseas to make our best stuff. And why do you think that is? I don't know. And it's it's I've been away for five years, so I don't think I'm I have a license really to get in there and and mm. be part of the discussion. I, I mean, I've luckily been a part of you know the slap and love my way that I think are two of the best shows Australia's made, and that's because the creatives. Um, you know, we're executive producers and we were kind of given a licence to tell a bold story um, and not limit ourselves. And I believe that when that happens um, and when that is the priority, the writing, and you get to cast the actors that you want to cast, you get a, a pretty good result and you can see that across the board with the best shows. I'm a huge, huge fan of Christos Chalkos. I Actually, I read his first book in manuscript form as a young bookseller. And I've, I mean, it's unashamedly, every time I see him, I just, I am in awe of him. I love him. I always want to touch him. And so I didn't. (laughs) He wouldn't mind that. He's a very tactile man. He's gorgeous. He writes these brutal, dark novels and he's one of the most gorgeous, cuddly men you'll ever meet. And soft, just beautiful, lovely, soft personality. Yeah. So I've, I've had the, you know, he's been in the office a couple of times and I've recorded a few podcasts with him. But what I was getting to was I read The Slap and I loved it. So I didn't ever want to see the TV series because I 
was worried that that was going to, I was going taint to be disappointed. Your, yeah, yes, yeah. And taint it. But, you know, so I only saw it last year in lockdown and yeah. I loved it. I loved yeah. it. And I thought it was a real treat to see it after all those years. And I'm so glad I did. I thought it was brilliantly done. And that you can't say that about all adaptations. You know, very often they, no. they get them wrong. Listen, so at what point did you decide, okay, I'm going to sit down and write a book? Because, you know, to have done the writing that you've done is one thing, but to commit to writing 90,000 words or 100,000 words or having a story and having a craft and bringing that together, that requires a little bit of commitment, doesn't it? Absolutely. And when when the game is on or the dance is on, which is my line of work, you know, in acting yeah. and writing and things are shifting from front burner to back burner and you might be going to Bucharest or you might be doing a TV show in Melbourne or that TV show you write might be going, or hang on, it's not going, but that new idea might be going. And yeah. you're just constantly in this, which direction are we headed yeah. on? Oh, I'm going to New Zealand for four months. Yeah. Um, so, you know, and that's when you're going well. But when it stopped, you know, I went to London last year and and when it stopped in March um, and this virus that was starting to eke out of China and we'd heard about it but I kind of write it off as like, oh, it's just the SARS or whatever or the bird flu, they build it up, it's gone in eight days type thing. And all of a sudden, no, this is no joke and I was stuck in London and I got I got the kind of, you know, the truthful forecast that I wasn't going to be leaving my flat my basement flat in Notting Hill for maybe four to six months. Avatar had called off filming and I thought, oh, God, I'm not going anywhere. I was. I had this idea and I had this idea kind of about um, and it was called Impact Player at the time and I'd, I'd, I'd shopped it around to a couple of TV production companies about a footy player um, that got involved with poetry and it was a pretty different idea at the time but... Oh, I'd imagine it would have been a hard sell originally. I mean, to bring well, it's not yeah. because no. what makes great television is juxtaposition and dynamic. Right. Um, you know, what we watch is the wrong thing happening to the wrong character, and that's what alerts us. You know, Walter White, the science teacher, becomes a meth dealer. It's absolutely preposterous, but that's what brings the comedy and the tragedy. If you have two literal things happening at the same time, you know, you have a very art house film, you know what I mean? Sad music, sad images, sad story. But to make something, you know, precocious and comic, you need that dynamic. And so the idea was actually strong and it made sense. And I, I just put on this night called Poems for Fours, Pause at the Giant Dwarf, where I'd raised about $15,000 for the Koala Hospital, Macquarie oh. Koala Hospital, where I got all the celebrities to come in and do an original poem because I hate hearing people recite other people's poems, but I love hearing people read out their poems as shit or brilliant as they are. It's just amazing to watch. And I realised because I'd made a bit of money with Avatar and I thought I don't want to just write an episode of television, you know, to have a job. I'm like, why do I write? Why did I start writing? And I remembered it was poetry, doing poetry in pubs and doing poetry in front of mum and nan. And I was always writing funny little poems in books. I've got 100 books full of poems. And, and then I thought, well, that's not really interesting. But what is interesting if poetry could save a bloke's life and who is the last human being on earth, you know? Um, and then I came up with Peter the Plum Lum. This guy, this concussed, demented, bruised and battered old thug who stumbles upon a poetry night when he loses his job at the airport 
and it starts living in his soul, then he gets visited upon um, by dead poets. He doesn't know who they are. And then it just came to life. But I was pictured as a TV show. And then when I got to London, I was hanging out, um, having a walk uh, around Regent's Gardens with, with one of my best mates, Fiona Series, who I wrote Love My Way with. And she said, Brendan, your prose is great and it's such a literary idea. Write the book. Like write another book. It's been 10 years that's what you do well. You use those words so well. Um, your poetry is amazing and you could use play to your strengths. Plus it's rugby league and poetry, two favourite things. Like write a book and I, and then because the world had stopped and the dance had stopped and the agents weren't calling, the agents were like, oh, I'm going back to my parents' house in the country. I went, hang on, I'm going to take this five months because I could suddenly be like a writer, like Ernest Hemingway, in the, you know, hiding out in Mexico or where, you know, or yeah. and living in a village and no one's going to ask me to do anything. I can walk around, go fishing. Well, you can't go fishing, but you know what I mean? I can just be a novelist. Uh, so I just took the opportunity and I got up and, and I worked from eight till six every day and, and you know, and I got the virus as well and, you know, I had oh, a did. heartbreak and, you know, I had a breakup and so Plum started to save me just as much as I tried to save him. And that's not a convenient thing to say. I needed him and he needed me. And we went on this journey together during the really one of the toughest periods of my life, you know, living in a basement flat with rodents, heartbroken, coronavirus, you know, 43 years old, thinking, God, what is my life? Peter Lum came to hold my hand and I pushed him out into the world and it was really a, um, a mutual bromance of sorts um, between Peter Lum and I. Mm. You write beautifully, beautiful, and it's very sensitive in a way. We've run out of time. Brendan Cowell, thank you so much. The book is called Plum and it's out now. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBookstore. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. being a little extra can be a bit much but when it comes to healthcare it pays to be extra and united healthcare makes it easy with health protector guard fixed indemnity insurance plans underwritten by golden rule insurance company they supplement your primary plan helping you manage out of pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods so when it comes to covering your medical bills you can feel good about being a little extra visit uh1.com to find the health protector guard plan for you 
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.